Hey, Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church Audio Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have part five of our series, Following Jesus. Today, we're looking at the discipline of serving others, particularly the example of Jesus from Philippians 2, 1 through 8. Also, we got a lot of other good things coming up. Part two of our Bag Hunger Outreach will be this Saturday at 9 o'clock in the morning to collect food for the Covington Food Bank. And tomorrow night, we actually kick off Sin Night at the Vineyard, Service Industry Night. You can check out more info at sinnight.org. This is a service that we put together for folks who work in the service industry. Love to see you bring some people out for that. Tomorrow night, 7 o'clock, food, music, and talk about Jesus. Well, speaking of talking, let's head over to North Shore Vineyard. Thanks for listening. Well, for the last few weeks, we've been in a series called Following Jesus, and we're looking at different practices, disciplines in the Christian life uh, to, to follow Jesus more effectively, how we can encounter Christ's presence in our lives. And last week, I talked about the area of giving, generosity. We've also talked about worship, about just loving people as a spiritual discipline. Today, we're going to turn... Uh, to turn our attention to serving, which is good because we, if you haven't noticed, we've got all kinds of opportunities to serve around here. So I'm going to read the text today. If you got your Bible, it's in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 8. I'm reading out of the NIV right now. This is Paul writing to the church of Philippi. He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others." And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death. On a cross. Father, I just pray this morning as we dig into your word uh, that, that, that we would encounter you in the scriptures, Lord. I just pray that, that you would give us eyes to see this morning, ears to hear, God, and that every thought that would exalt itself against the knowledge of Jesus would be brought low, God. Lord, I just pray for myself this morning as I, as I speak, God, that, that you would just uh, empower me to Say the right things to make the message clear, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in America, we grow up with certain kinds of ideas that 90% of the people in the world do not have. The kind of ideas about fighting for our rights. Do you realize that's a very American idea? Like, the, the right to, to own guns, the right to free speech, the right to freedom of religion. The idea that we would consider that we can even fight for those things is a very American idea. If you grow up in China, 
You don't think about the right to, it doesn't cross your mind to think about free speech or freedom of religion. It's not on the table. If you grow up in certain parts of Africa or South America or Saudi Arabia, you don't think about fighting for your own rights because you don't believe you have any. It's not on your radar. And so as Americans, we get really stirred up about our rights, right? We've got the rights to, to all kinds of things. It, actually, in the Declaration of Independence, it says uh, that we have unalienable rights. That's a strange word. Unalienable rights uh, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness because we've been endowed them by our Creator God. That's in the Declaration of Independence. We believe as a people that God has given us rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's a very American idea, though. And it's, it's, it's certainly a product of, of, of our environment and our kind of cultural ethos, the, the DNA that makes us Americans. And that's one of the reasons we got such a great uh, country, is that we do have rights. People thought through the protection of, of rights, and that's great. But what I want to say this morning is that many times you can fight for your rights to the point where you are wrong about your rights. <laughs> Right? <laughs> Does that make sense? You can, you can be so fighting for your rights that you become wrong in trying to be right. It's a tongue twister there. <laughs> uh, for instance, there's this lovely little Thai buffet down here a few blocks away. And I love it. I love Thai food, and they got some good stuff over here. And it's not open on Sundays, though. But the only problem is it's an all-you-can-eat buffet. And why is that a problem? Because as an American who grew up cleaning my plate, uh, searching for the best economic values, I feel compelled uh, to, to have a second plate. It's hard for me to stop with one plate. Why? Because if you get one plate for eight bucks, how about two plates for eight bucks, right? Does anybody ever think that? Like, Yeah. And it's, it's one thing when it's good food, but have you ever been to like a really lousy Chinese buffet and it's cold and you go back for a second plate just for the sheer economic principle of it? Is it am I the only one? Okay. <laughs> I have the right to eat all that I can eat. And so I fulfill my rights, but it's probably not the best thing. Uh, just because it's right doesn't really mean it's right for me. <laughs> uh, and yet, this is kind of the vibe that we have as Americans. I, I've shared the statistic uh, recently a few times that the largest growing, when they do demographic studies in America, the largest growing group uh, in, in religious minds right now, uh, in religious thinking in our country, is non-believers. And it's particularly, it's actually the largest segment of the population is between 18 and 29 are becoming non-believers. And guess what? These aren't kids that grew up in secular atheist homes. These are kids who grew up, for the most part, in church. And why are they giving up on religion? Why are they giving up on church? Why are they saying, I don't believe in, in God anymore? It's not that they're hostile towards Jesus. They're hostile towards a church that has become so aligned with politics and nationalisms and things that aren't really in the scripture. 
People have encountered an attitude that is so arrogant and condescending in the church. And it's not that evangelicals have have fought necessarily for bad things all the time. It's the tone. You can be right and be wrong. Sometimes you can be wrong and and still... (laughs) have humility and, and love, and, and I think it, in the grand scheme of things, you're probably righter than the right person. Okay, this is getting confusing in my head right now. <laughs> the main reason that, that so many young people are turning away from the church has nothing to do with Jesus. Actually, when you ask them about Jesus, yeah, Jesus, I like him. It's just his people don't really match up. It's, it's kind of like what Gandhi said one time. <laughs> I like your Jesus, just don't like your... Jesus followers. See, it's interesting about this passage that we're looking at today. Jesus, our supreme example of the Christian faith. Paul says that though he was God, he didn't play the God card. Though he was privileged, he left his privileged existence. He traded in his kingly robes, his title, all the accolades. Uh, Losing my mic. And he came down and he took the form of a servant. He humbled himself to step into our world. Not only that, he faced the worst that our world had had to offer. He faced the worst that humanity had to offer. And he didn't face it with all his God power. He faced it like you and I face it. He endured even death on a cross. See, in our world, if we were going to do something like try to be king or, or... uh, president, you don't do it by taking the low road, right? If you want to be president in America, you've got to at least have a billion dollars right now to fund the advertising budget. And it's been the same way throughout human history. Alexander the Great, the Caesars that, that were on the scene, like Augustus uh, around the time of Jesus, when they would come in, it was with pomp and circumstances, with legions of armies, with people proclaiming that Caesar is Lord. Bow before Caesar. People singing songs of his praise. Yet when Jesus comes into Jerusalem the week before the crucifixion, how does he come in? Is it with legions of armies? Is it with swords and with might and with power and pomp and circumstance? No, it's riding on the back of a donkey. Actually, Paul at one point He writes, uh, the the gospel, the cross, it's absolute foolishness to Greek people. The the Greeks of the time, the Greek mindset of the time. Like this guy from a, a kind of small, persecuted, obscure part of the empire who was born to a teenage couple in Palestine in the first century goes on to have a ministry with 12 guys that travels around And then in his darkest moment of despair, even his 12 closest friends all turn their back on him. One of them absolutely betrays him unto death. And then he's crucified by the Romans. And you guys are celebrating this guy? That doesn't make sense. Paul says to to the world, it's foolishness. It's, It's just absolute stupidity. What is wrong with you people? This guy is a failure. But Paul says what... What, what is foolish to the world is actually the wisdom of God. 
What is weakness to the world is actually God's strength. When you see Jesus hanging up on the cross, it's not a picture of weakness. It's, it's a picture of God flexing his omnipotent muscle. He's showing us what true strength is. But it's a completely different path. And Paul says, we ought to consider one another in light of what Christ has done. In other words, he's... He's our role model, our example. That just as Jesus did not grab for power or position or prominence or, or, or try to force his way into things, he didn't force people to bow down and say, Jesus is Lord. He just loved them. He served them. In the same way that Jesus did that, we ought to do the same. We don't grab for power or position or try to lord it over people. We come under. We serve in humility. And in, in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in the very nature with God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. It's hard to imagine Jesus fighting, if, if he was a modern American, it's hard to imagine him fighting for his rights. <laughs> because he gave up all his rights. He gave up every right he had. He wasn't trying to defend himself. He, he wasn't trying to say, I'm the king. I've, I'm in the line of David. I've got a right to this throne. No, he just submitted to the Father's will. Laying aside our rights because of love is more powerful than fighting for our rights. Laying aside our rights because of love for other people is a bigger deal than fighting for our own rights. Now, it's anti-American, I know. It's anti-any country, probably. But I am going to lay aside my right to do this thing because I love you. Paul says this all the time. Paul says, I've got the right to do anything I want. I'm free. I can do anything I want, but not everything's lawful. And at the end of the day, I am going to let the law of love rule in my heart. So if if I'm going to cause somebody to stumble by eating meat, then I'll eat vegetables. That's another message. You know, living in the New Orleans area post-Katrina was an interesting experience. It's the kind of education you don't pick up in seminary or Bible college. Uh, within just a couple of weeks of the storm, really within a week, we had teams coming in from all over the country to our church in Kenner. And, and it, we ended up having this relief camp, tent city out there with giant circus tents and uh, barbecue pits and stuff. And we were hosting teams for about three years. And it it's interesting because there's this whole untold story about Katrina Relief that didn't make it to Anderson Cooper. It didn't make it in the big newspapers, but the people of the New Orleans area are familiar with it. I remember one day, a few months after Katrina, listening to WWL radio, and I heard uh, Bob Del Giorno, and uh, y'all familiar with him? He's one of the morning talk show hosts. And his mother had a place in Bay St. Louis. And he was talking on the radio how the, the storm surge had, had destroyed her house. 
And he was just saying how she'd had so much trouble trying to get help. She called FEMA up, and there's all this bureaucratic red tape. She calls the Red Cross out, and the Red Cross was spread too thin to, to really offer her any help. Then one day he said, and you could tell it, he was like choked up on the radio. He said, then one day, out of the blue, without invitation, without asking anybody to do this, a church group shows up, and they feed her. They begin helping her clean up her lot. They just sit with her. They just begin serving her. And he was blown away. And you know what? That story, it's not a unique, rare, exceptional story. It happened all over the New Orleans area, from the Ninth Ward to Lakeview to Gentilly to St. Bernard to the Gulf Coast. Christians who would just show up unannounced and just start serving people. They had the right to do other things, but they laid down their rights to serve other people. And you know what? It wasn't any one denomination. I think this is one of the most beautiful things of Hurricane Katrina, what I saw with the church. You had Baptists serving with Pentecostals and Catholics. You had non-denominational people serving with mainline denominational people, Lutherans and Methodists. You had all kinds of people laying down even their own doctrinal stances and their own corner on the market of truth, and they just started living out the ways of Jesus. It was crazy. And think of what that communicated to the rest of the world. Like, for just a little bit of time, Christians stopped fighting about doctrine, and they just started loving people, serving people, being about the work of Jesus. That made a huge impact. I'm encouraged because even though I don't see that happening in the church a lot today, at least I know it can happen. The church took up Paul's words. They laid aside their rights. People who had the right to a nice home, nice meals, comfort, gave up their comfort so they could help others. I want to read a passage from Galatians. This kind of sounds like the passage we, we talked about last week from uh, 1 Corinthians, I believe. Do not be deceived. This is Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in well-doing... For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially those of the house of faith. Paul says, don't grow weary in doing good. Why does he say that? Because doing good for any extended period of time, it's easy to grow weary. Anybody ever grown weary in doing good? Anybody grown weary doing bad? Okay. Yeah, that's me. Uh, No, he says don't grow weary in doing good because honestly, that's one of the biggest temptations. You know, it's easy to get inspired by like what Paulette talks about. Think about the children who don't have books and don't have basic needs. Yes, I'm ready to write a check right now. I'll go buy some books today. I'll bring that up. It's easy to do that. It's much harder to do that every week for the rest of this year. I remember when we did our first bag hunger outreach, we had a lady uh, who was a city councilwoman come to us, and she said, hey, this bag hunger thing, that's great. We did it around Thanksgiving. 
She's like, it's great. A lot of churches, they want to take care of people on Thanksgiving. The only problem is they forget about these people in their own community for the rest of the year. And so it just becomes uh, something that feels very sentimental and inspirational to us. Oh, they get a Thanksgiving dinner, but they go hungry the rest of the year. I learned this, this, this tendency to grow weary in doing well. I've learned it many times. But I think one of the, one of the biggest times was in Kids Hope USA. We had a, a mentoring program we launched on the South Shore where we adopted a local public school. And we would train up mentors from the church to go spend one hour a week with an at-risk child that was recommended to our program from a teacher. And so one hour a week doesn't sound like much. It wasn't much. I mean, really, in the scope of nine months, you only spend about 24 hours with a kid. In nine months. That's a day. A night. And yet it was the consistency part that was really hard. It was really easy to get excited about helping these at-risk kids who are coming from broken families. Yes, sign me up. And then we started doing it. I was one of the first mentors. And I show up, and, and I, I mentored a different kid for three years, every, every year for three years. And I got to tell you, I, I mean, I'm white, middle class, come from a fairly decent family, you know? I haven't ever had to, I'm not gone hungry, obviously. <laughs> I've, I've, I've missed an occasional second breakfast, but... Uh, <laughs> But here I am meeting with some kids who are of a different race, who are coming from very trying circumstances, kids who frequently go hungry, kids who would, would be looked at as a burden by their own parents or else not even looked at at all, just ignored. Some in a very abusive situation, some in situations of neglect. How do I connect with these kids? I tell you what, that gets intimidating. Please, let me just talk to adults, but, but this, this child. And so I would show up week after week, and it was, it was hard. I would be asking God the question, is what I'm doing making a difference at all? I mean, really, I don't feel like we're connecting culturally. I, I just feel like, yeah. And every Kids Hope mentor, mentor would have this. But there's something that, interesting that would happen after about three months of meeting with your child. They begin to open up. Actually, we begin to see, uh, we begin to see changes many times in their attitude. They start getting along with kids better. Their, their grades start going up. They, they start having better social skills. Because you know what? All of a sudden, you become one stable, consistent, positive influence in their life. That's really the... the the, the secret of Kids Hope is not that you've got brilliant mentors who've been tr- trained. I mean, I feel like I'm a failure as a mentor. I, <laughs> I don't know what to say. Some of their math throws me off too. <laughs> Thought he was going to help me with math. I'm, I'm worse off. But, uh, <laughs> but the thing that wins out is that you become something consistent in a world that is inconsistent and insecure for these kids. And it begins to bear fruit. But you know what? It's not just in these kids. I found in mentoring these kids and Kids Hope, uh, after three years of doing this, it changed me. I learned something about God's love. I learned something about patience. See, Paul says, don't grow weary in doing good stuff. Sometimes we do good stuff and we get burned out. I got burned out many times in ministry. 
Well, that's why we try to do things fairly sustainable here. You know, if you serve in children's ministry, we ask you to do once a month. If you serve in various areas, we try to shoot for once a month on serving. But Paul says, don't grow weary. It's, it's a temptation to get into something and you're pouring into it and pouring into it and you don't see results. And it's hard when we do something and we don't see results, isn't it? It's, you know, if you get an amazing, you start something and then in a week you see results, it's like, yes, I'm going to keep doing this. But Paul says it's like sowing and reaping. If you go plant tomato seeds in your yard, it will be a few months before you have tomatoes. And for the first several weeks, it's going to look like nothing's happening. Because this seed is just in the dark, alone, <laughs> Now, the process of life is happening. It's stirring beneath the surface. It's going somewhere. But even when that little first shoot sprouts through the ground, it doesn't look like much. It don't look like tomatoes. It's hard to get a vision for it. (laughs) But one day, Paul says, it will reap. Why? He says, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. You You will reap as you sow. And you'll reap as you sow into... Others. I like the way uh, Eugene Peterson puts this in the, the message. Don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants, he will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of others, ignoring God, harvests a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of life. Real life, eternal life. So let's not allow ourselves to get fatigued in doing good. At the right time, we will harvest a good crop if we don't give up or quit. Right now, therefore, every time we get the chance, let us work for the benefit of all, starting with the people closest to us in the community of faith. I tell you, if you serve in children's ministry at this church, you may not see results. You may think, I just taught, taught the most amazing Bible lesson, and I don't see results, you know. <laughs> you, may, you may do a few months back there, but I guarantee you that what you're sowing is going to, to bear fruit by giving up your rights. I, I love that each weekend, I mean, Paulette's one of them. My wife, Dina, Marsha, Ed. Bill, we got all kinds of people who give up their right to be around adults on the weekend, give up their right to listen to cool accordion worship, (laughs) give up their right to hanging out and fellowshipping with adults so they can go serve kids and tell them about Jesus. And that's good stuff. And it's going somewhere. It will bear fruit. How cool is it that we get an opportunity to be a part of that? Paul says, don't grow weary in doing your good stuff. He doesn't say don't do good stuff. Just don't grow weary in it. And how do you not grow weary? By considering Jesus. Um, Where did I put this? Hebrews 12, verse 2 through 3 says this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
How do you not grow weary when you're doing good? Look at Jesus. Consider Jesus. I find most of the time when I start growing weary or resentful or start wanting to become the martyr, like I'm the only one who shows up early at church on a Sunday morning and... uh, (laughs) It's usually because I'm getting some kind of sense of entitlement, like I deserve better. I'm starting to lay a hold of my rights more. But then if I look back at Jesus who gave up his rights to step into our world and to love us on hard terms, it it changes something because I realize he did that for me. I wouldn't be here if Jesus didn't do that. When I start looking at Jesus, when I consider him as the one who started this thing and will end this thing, it will help me to not grow weary. Because now I'm just participating in what Jesus has done. Yeah, it may look insignificant. It may look like foolishness. I'm sure children's ministry, a lot of the things we do around here. To the outsiders, it just looks it's silly. Like, gather around and sing silly songs and, and do crafts. That's silliness. Maybe to you. But we believe it's the power of God. We believe it's going somewhere. We keep our eyes on Jesus. We remember that he gave up his treasured place to step into our world. If we don't consider Jesus in this way, we may end up serving out of guilt. Have you ever just served because you felt guilty before? I have. I've served out of guilt. I've served out of obligation. But you know the other side is? I serve sometimes out of pride. We don't like talking about this. I ran into this after Katrina. I've got this. I think most pastors have this latent messianic complex. We want to save the world. We want to be heroes. And, and, and sometimes serving can be toxic for people because we, we end up trying to be God for people. Unintentionally, sometimes out of good motives. But we try to be their savior and we can't. And if you've ever tried to save people that, uh, you know, like save them in their circumstances, it, it can kill you sometimes because you're trying to be God for them. And that's not what God wants. But as we look to Jesus, as we focus on him, it deals with our own messianic complex. And it deals also with guilt, with obligation, We're keeping our eyes on him and it rescues us from that. We can serve because he served us. We can give grace because he's been gracious to us. We can give love because he first loved us. It's hard to not love people when you realize how much God loves you. (laughs) It's hard to not be gracious to people when you realize how gracious God's been to you. It's only when we stop realizing how gracious God is to us that we start getting an attitude with other people. We start getting a sense of entitlement. I deserve better. Yeah, not really. (laughs) Not so much. (laughs) Jesus didn't do everything he did because you deserved it. He did it because he loves you. He's absolutely in love with you. And he's gracious and compassionate. He's not like people. Not like the people we know. And he wants to draw us up into that. I want to close today. We're going to take communion here in just a second. Maybe I'll get the band back up here. Um... I want to ask about, I want to just highlight a couple of things on the serving end of, of things that, that, that where we can start. You know, in this church, we got all kinds of places you can serve. You can serve with children's ministry. Can I get an amen? amen. Can I get an amen? amen? You can serve with children's ministry. We've got hospitality, making coffee. We, that's a big value here at our church. Uh, 
But even tomorrow night, our service industry night, we're just going to serve the servers. How cool is that? We're going to serve the servers. Bag hunger. The thing Paul let the book drive. There's so many ways you can get involved on just serving other people. Laying down your rights and being a part of what God's doing. But I, I, I think probably a, an even better way to consider this is, is in your own families. In your own neighborhoods. How can you serve your neighbors? How can you serve your wife? Or your husband? Or your kids? It's so easy around the house to get resentful, right? <laughs> I, just, I just pick up these messes. Nobody, nobody thanks me. I just pick it up all the time. I cook. <laughs> nobody appreciates me. Let's try to look at Jesus and take the attitude of serving. He served even when he didn't get accolades. Nobody thanked him. He just kept doing it. Let's keep our eyes on him. This morning, as we focus our attention on Jesus, I don't think there's any better way to, to look at Jesus than to, to take the Lord's Supper together, to take communion. We're really celebrating the laying down of Jesus' life before us, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood. And so we're going to close this service by taking communion together and singing that song, Name Above All Names. So I invite J- Al and Judy up here to the front and... As they sing, you can just make your way forward at any moment. If, you, if you'd like to participate in communion, you don't have to. Um, but if you want to participate in communion, they're gonna, you can just break off a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. Take it on your own today. And, um, and then just sing along in the worship. As they begin to play, just make your way up.